Welcome. I'm Warner Deschillet, and this is a Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to a Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Jean Gazelle on September 28, 2021. Jean is director of the Multiracial Unity Living Experience, which her students adoringly refer to as Emerald. Emerald is an undergraduate race relations program dedicated to social justice at Michigan State University. She is an affiliate faculty member at the Center for Integrative Studies and Social Science, the African Studies Center, and the Center for Gender and Global Context. She created an offshoot to Emerald in Johannesburg, South Africa, called VVOCF, which stands for a Zangu word that means our children's future. It's a youth center that became a hub for community building activities. She was also instrumental in creating a small nonprofit in the U.S. to complement the work of VVOCF called Global Youth for Education and Change. I started the interview by asking Jean where she grew up. And what was religious life like growing up? I grew up in a working class suburb of Detroit, Michigan. The religious background of my family was really interesting in the sense that my father was raised Presbyterian because his father just joined it because his father was trying to Americanize as much as possible being a an immigrant from Lebanon, and he came at the time of of World War One and fought in World War One, and then came and tried to establish his family. So he just randomly joined a church. My mother was raised in a what's called Syrian Orthodox church, and she wasn't feeling it. And so when she married my father, she just said, "I'll take that." <laughs> <laughs> and so the children were raised in the Presbyterian Church of a place called Lincoln Park, Michigan. And so was your grandfather of Christian background from Lebanon? We don't really know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, we really don't know to what extent religion was a part of their life. All we know is that he joined this Presbyterian church here. Mm -hmm. So we don't know that he made a conscious choice, like my mother made a conscious choice to say, no thanks on the orthodoxy. With my grandfather, the story isn't clear. Mm. So tell us your spiritual journey that led you to becoming a Baha'i. When I was 15, I was quite a a very curious young person who was really trying to make sense of the world and why I was in it. I wrote a, a little mini youth sermon that I gave at my church on world peace. Shortly after that, These two things aren't related, but they're related in my mind as I go back and tell my story of what made me say something's not right here, (laughs) which was I was curious. I had that quest. I was thinking about things like world peace with my limited exposure because it was a very limited exposure in my community. There was Catholics and Protestants, folks who had any kind of ethnic diversity were so few in number that you knew who they were. There was our Arab family. There was a Mexican-American family, and there was a Greek-American family, and everyone else was of European descent, either Protestant or Catholic. In the elementary school where I went, 
it was the Protestants against the Catholics. That was, or the Catholics against the Protestants. And that was like the lingo of who was the other. So 15 years old, thinking about things like world peace, I hear in church an authority, and I can't remember because a lot of people ask me to remember who that was, and I don't know if it was a deacon or the minister himself. It was a man at that time. They said that Islam was not a real religion. My 15-year-old self is sitting there going, I don't know what Islam is, but I'm pretty sure that there is something wrong with one religion condemning another. And after that, I left the church, mm. and I just said, this is not for me. So I went through my turbulent adolescence mm. and just like, maybe there is no meaning. A very short time after that, I was working in a pie and sandwich shop, and I used to wait on these two gentlemen on a regular basis. And then I quit, and they really, I'm a very outgoing, friendly person. They really liked me a lot. They'd come in every day to talk to me. When I left and I told them I was leaving, they left me a $5 tip, which was a huge amount of money back then. And they said, you're so radiant. We think you should check out the Baha'i faith. And that was the first time I heard the words Baha'i faith. And I was like, okay, that's nice. You know, didn't think too much more of it and continued on with my crazy adolescent self. And then I was in a class in my senior year of high school, and it was a poetry class, romantic poetry of the 18th and 19th century. Our teacher told us that in order to understand this poetry, you have to understand something about spirituality, because these poets are writing from a place of spiritual quest. Maybe most of you, if you don't have a spiritual practice, I'm going to just share with you a practice. And so he taught us to meditate in a very simple way. And he said, I want you to do this, and I want you to write about it. And from there, we're going to then talk about the poems and their meaning. So I was doing my exercise. I will never forget this. I know exactly the place in my parents' basement that I was doing this exercise. While I was doing it, this simple meditation of trying to block everything out, you saw a white dot on a black screen in your head, in your mind, I was overcome with this powerful feeling of, oh my God, I, there's something in me that is saying that there's something greater than myself. I became overwhelmed with tears and I was, I was just crying on the floor. <laughs> yeah, that was my first experience with sensing something beyond myself. So I wrote about it. I asked to talk to the teacher after class the teacher read the essay and said, yes, you've had a sense of discovery. Then I said, so well, what do I do with this? He introduced me to the Baha'i faith. And he said, well, you might want to read a little bit more about it. He said, I'm a Baha'i. He said something about the oneness of humanity and God and religion. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds like something that I would, that I would respond to based on my previous experience. And so mm -hmm. that's what started my journey. I was 17, and I became a Baha'i shortly after that. So <laughs> what were your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? Um, it didn't go down so well, especially, not my dad so much. He was kind of like laissez-faire, a little bit like his own father. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but my mother was worried about cults and difference and you know it was the 70s 
you know, young people were making all kinds of moves and doing things way different than what the World War II generation Depression parents were prepared for. Mm-hmm. Not unlike each generation, though. So they weren't happy. She wasn't happy. And she had more of the control in the household. So I tried to keep it on the DL for quite a while. I mean, I tried not to make a big deal of it, I guess is how I would say that. And we all worked it through. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it took time. But then, you know, she loved me and she grew to respect that I made very different choices about how I would live my life as a result of my striving to become a follower of the light as I like to phrase it, because this what it was, is light. I saw light. I saw illumination. I saw sense, meaning where I couldn't find it otherwise, meaning of who I was in relationship to a divine, in relationship to others, in the relationship to a world, because I was very hungry for trying to understand that question of who I was in relationship to the world. Which sort of leads me to another question, Jean, and that is, you're 17, you're facing adulthood in front of you. How would you say the becoming a Baha'i affected the direction you went in going forward toward adulthood? I would say that becoming a Baha'i at such a young age really helped me to make choices that were affirming to learning how to live into what it meant to be a member of one human family. So the next phase is a really important phase in this story because what comes after high school, college came, and I came to Michigan State University. I happened to become one of the first people in this young African-American professor's career. This young African-American professor at that time's name was Richard Thomas. He, many know, is a renowned historian, particularly of 20th century race relations, but also of what is called the other tradition, what he's called, what he's coined the other tradition, which is studying the interracial cooperation as a part of race relations in throughout the 20th century, and even before 19th and 20th century, but particular focus on the 20th century. I was his student. I was in my second year of college. I followed him around like, wow, this is all that I want to learn. I want to learn this. I want to learn this. And so I took every class he offered. I think he offered three different ones that I could take. And I ended up what they called at that time a cognate. My major was English. My minor was theater. And my cognate was race relations because I couldn't get a minor in it at that time. But this is what really started me on my path of the quest that I had of how do I translate this beautiful teaching of the oneness of the human family in unity and diversity, not unity, not uniformity. How do I translate those concepts into reality? So then my next steps where I graduated and then I went on to graduate school and then I studied theater and MFA at um, University of Washington in Seattle. But something that then happened after that was what I was trying to build what I thought was a theater career, theater and education career, because I focused on education and bringing theater to young people. When I look back at my trajectory, young people were always a part of what I wanted to do, whether it was my peers when I was young, or whether it was the student population that I ended up always accompanying through whatever learning. So at that time in the 80s, it was theater arts. 
my master's thesis was I worked with a group of youth and we improvised a play on the question of what would happen if they were trapped in a bomb shelter. And when I tell my current students this, uh, all these years later, they just kind of look at me like and scratch their heads. And I have to explain to them in the early 80s, their peers, like people who were in high school and college at this time, this is one of the biggest issues that they were facing because there was so much propaganda around the nuclear arms race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union at that time that they really were made to believe that they might not have a future and they, or there might be a, a nuclear war. That's what I did and then finished that, came back to Michigan for family reasons. At that time also was a mother of two young children and was pursuing a teaching job in the theater and producing plays. And I just wanted to do work that was around social justice issues, whether they were about race or gender or people struggling because of some sort of oppressive system. So I found myself like those are the plays that I was directing one after the other. And I realized, oh, it's what I wrote when I wrote the show, what I really care about. Yes, I really care about theater, but what I really care about is social change. I want a better world and I want to accompany youth and helping to create a better world. So one thing led to another. I had to leave. I couldn't make a living. My family situation changed. I used to go to see a lot of theater because that's what you do when you're trying to learn how to be better. So as part of my professional development, I would go to a theater conference once a year, the annual one and some re regional ones. But when I was at the annual conference for that year, I saw this resistance theater piece from South Africa, and I had never seen theater so riveting. And I just fell like head over and wanted to know how is this done? What is this about? Because I could tell there was improv in it. So I started to research it. I was also very active in the anti-apartheid movement at that time. I ended up writing a Fulbright research scholarship. I ended up getting that and being funded to go to South Africa to study resistance theater in 1989 and 1990. These are the years when the apartheid regime fell. Nelson Mandela was released and the beginnings of building, quote, a new South Africa. The reason why this is an important part of the trajectory in my life, other than it just being an interesting fun fact, is that it really helped to clarify my path with this intersection of theater and race relations, really. And when I was in South Africa at that time, there was nothing, nothing that was not about race. Everything was about race because the country was in such upheaval. So when I came back after my two years was up and I was trying to find my next step and I knew it wasn't, I couldn't support my family in the theater. I was wanting to do more education around race, race relations. So Richard, my former professor and dear, dear brother had started a consulting business in race relations. So he needed help. And so I joined that when I got back from South Africa. And that led the foundation for us being both invited to work at MSU to try to help create a program that would bring students of diverse backgrounds together, because there was so much at that time. Now we're talking the mid 90s. And there was so much that actually contributed to reinforcing separateness 
this could never be solved. This is it's two Americas, a black and a white. I mean, not too unfamiliar with what we continually see a resurgence of and definitely what we saw a resurgence of in, in 2020. I call it like the early 90s rendition of that. That led to us being asked by the university to create something that would do something different, that would actually bring students together. And that was the birth of the program that I now have called the Multiracial Unity Living Experience, which is about to celebrate its 25 years anniversary. And I guess you call it M-Rule for short? Yes. Like students named it M-Rule for short because nobody wants to say multiracial unity living experience. And how did you come up with the title? Our... Yeah, that's a great question. So we were answering the who, what, where, why kind of thing. We wanted unity as a focus because that was obviously our goal to create unity. We wanted to name who we were creating unity with because the models of unity that we have around us are usually more like uniformities, people with same background, same interest, similar experiences, getting together. That's definitely what you see a lot of on a college campus. So we had to name that it was multiracial. And then we wanted it to be experiential. We wanted it to be a learning. So it could have really been learning instead of living, but then we decided it should be living because it was for students who were living in residence halls. That's how it got started. And it was actually the living in close proximity that helped them to develop the relationships that made the program viable. We did a test case the first year We had 24 students in that cohort. And the next year, without any advertising on our part, because we were really just learning, we were like, okay, we're going to try this. And we're going to bring these principles to bear. Those principles are that we're going to uphold the reality of the oneness of the human family. We are going to expose the concept of hierarchies that we have historically and even in contemporary ways, live with the impact of social hierarchies, social and racial hierarchies that have been created to dominate and control. So we're going to name that. And then we are going to lift up the power of human agency in being able to change narratives and change structures with our own consciousness and action. We raise our consciousness and act into that we're going to develop what we hope will be durable bonds, genuine relationships across all kinds of difference. That was our charge that we gave ourselves. And we started out, and then the next year, it went to 72, just based on the students' experience that they had, and they invited other people in. This was actually part of the university. It was a pilot program. We had three years of funding. Dialogue was the number one thing that we were doing. So we brought them together once a week. We had a meal together and we had a discussion. We call them round table discussions. And we'd sit in a circle and we would present a little bit of information that would help to get us to get things out and then take people a little bit farther in their understanding, whatever that topic may be. We used a lot of history, a lot of social forces, and we chained it up every week. 
so that their interest was piqued and kept, and then also it built on what we did the week before. Were there challenges, Jean, in maintaining a balance of diversity and also keeping the dialogues positive with the goal of we're one human family? The diversity of the group was a fundamental principle, so it was what we would say is it's all or nothing. You have to have a diverse group here. A lot of our attention and energy on making sure that was the case. So that's how we dealt with that challenge, just keeping it in the forefront. You don't settle for anything but thorough diversity. Now, does that mean you're going to get thorough diversity every week? Maybe not. But when you reflect upon who was there and who wasn't there, then you consult about what you need to do to work to bring more people in. So it was constant outreach and constant attention to the diversity, the demographics of the group. So that's one thing. As for keeping it positive, we don't use that language because what is most important is that we are in a respectful process of searching for truth. That's how we frame it. We are very careful to help young people understand that we want authenticity. We want them to be able to bring their authentic selves to this circle. So we do not expect that there isn't going to be anger or hurt or surprise or disbelief or mistakes that are said. Mistakes meaning that you could say something that could offend someone. We help them to understand that this principle that we call, as part of our ground rules, we call it give it to the group. And what that means is that when they share an idea, that idea is not attached to them, but is given as a contribution to the group in order to help the group move closer to understanding the reality, to getting closer to discovering truth. We also use a principle, a phrase that was actually inspired by Abdul Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, which I am a member of. From the clash of different opinions comes the spark of truth. So we normalize that we should have difference, that difference is a beautiful, powerful reality of the human condition. It needs to be cultivated uh, with love, with kindness, with veracity in order to move us to really be in a healthy and vibrant community. I'm speaking with Jean Gazelle, who is the director of the Multiracial Unity Living Experience, or MRUL as they call it an undergraduate race relations program dedicated to social justice administering in State University. Jean, you were also instrumental in creating a youth center in South Africa called VVOCF. So can you tell us the story of how that came to be and the center's mission and accomplishments? Uh, let me introduce the several practices as part of the multiracial 
unity living experience at Michigan State University. There are components. We, and so one is dialogue, which is a weekly dialogue, same time, same place, so that students can come to and build their understanding and build relationships. The second are social activities that they do outside of the dialogue, going for runs together or, or ice cream or whatever, whatever it may be. And then third is service. And we try on a regular basis to have regular service projects throughout for two major reasons. One is because it, it helps to take our eyes off of our own selves and when we're in service to others. And two, it is a really powerful way to build relationships with your peers when you're actually you know, doing something together. 2001 was a big turning point for the program. We started it in 1996. So five years later, we experienced, as we all know, since we just commemorated the 20th anniversary of 9-11, one thing I was beginning to notice after 9-11 was we had to help to broaden the dialogue. I'll give you an example. I would often hear African-American students in particular from the Detroit area who have, as we all know, from any major city, suffered from racial profiling and continue through all these years. At that time, it would be not uncommon to hear them say, well, I don't mind racial profiling if it's Arabs because I don't trust them. It took me just one or two times to hear that to go, hmm, we really have to work on our curriculum. We really have to help make it a global curriculum. So they understand that these things that we are teaching, this history that we are teaching, is it has particularities to Detroit or to Michigan or to the U.S., but it is seen up on a global stage. And we've just lived through this traumatic experience. This is a time that we have to really make sure we don't miss this opportunity to help really drive home the point of our oneness of, as a human family, because it's so easy to get stuck in our localities especially if that's all we know. So, so I began to globalize the curriculum much more intentionally. And then my students requested, because they knew I had been to South Africa, and they begged me to take them on a study abroad to South Africa. So I did that. Basically, I did all the steps that I needed to do to create a race relations in South Africa study abroad course. The first year that I did it in 2002, it attracted a lot of the students from the Emerald program. And one of the things we learned over the years, and I did it subsequently for several years after, and in 2006 and in 2007, when the HIV AIDS crisis was ravaging through so many of the areas that we had been visiting and working in as part of our going in and learning about and actually performing some acts of service wherever we could. When crisis was ravaging these communities, we tried to figure out how we could play a more regular part, not just go in one time and do a service project, but actually have an ongoing partnership with a local organization. And because I had a relationship with someone who lived in this community in Zonkizizwe, which is outside of Johannesburg, she and I together, along with one of my students at that time, who was in social work, we put our heads together and we 
did the groundwork for creating this community center that would provide additional care for children who have been orphaned by the HIV AIDS crisis, which at that time was a very large number because this was before the life-saving medication was able to turn the tide of deaths around. So that's how it got started. And the Emerald students helped to raise money, went on the program, were engaged in a pen pal program, met the young children and youth at the center. So the first year was 2007. It was functioning as a center, a very under-resourced center, but a center all the way up until 2020 when it was closed for COVID reasons. And I don't Mm. think they have been able to reopen since. So I would say one of the most beautiful things about this relationship and project that I have in Zonkizi's Way is how many young people from the U.S. were able to go there, not just once, but on several occasions, or were able to stay there for a three-month internship because we have a nonprofit in the U.S. called Global Youth for Education and Change, and that helped us to be able to facilitate young people going on internships and just providing service there in education or for nonprofit administration. We've had science students go there for science education. We've had a lot of variety of interns. And that has really been life-changing for every single one of those who went. And what they chose to do afterwards is really the beautiful story. Because they took their learning and they applied it in a service orientation for whatever field they were in. And they attribute the inspiration from that experience to helping them to do that. So I feel very encouraged and hopeful that we will be able to reopen and continue to provide that kind of an experience for young people if the world allows for that. So I'm very grateful for that time and for the experience those young people had. You've done quite a bit. You started with this multiracial unity living experience that then branched into service to South Africa with the VVOCF work, I guess, which is a community center work in South Africa with your students. And then you ended up creating a nonprofit so youth could spend time in South Africa to continue the work more than just the short-term service projects that you were creating. Where would you like to see this work that you're doing head toward going forward? Yeah, beautiful question. And I am going to share a story that I think will help guide us into answering that. One of the things that's very important to me, a principle, several principles are important to me, but one I want to lift right now is the principle of true education. Baha'u'llah, the prophet founders, he says, human beings are minds with gems of inestimable value. And education alone can cause us to reveal those treasures. So I'm very conscious of what a powerful tool education is. And I want to speak broadly to this concept of education, of bringing forth capacities. I do work for a university. And I have worked at this university for most of my career. So I know how important and how privileged I am to be in a well-resourced 
comparative to what I have seen all throughout my world travels about how valuable formal education can be, but also how restrictive it can be if that's all we think about when we think about education. And so one of the things that I was able to learn so beautifully in the work and the partnership at BVOCF, which I want to mention the why it's named BVOCF is because it's its name is a Songa name, which is Songa is one of the many official African languages in South Africa. And its translation is our children's future. Well, first of all, it's called Vumunsuga Viavana, which is the, the Songa word, which pardon any listeners who are native speakers, because I'm sure I did not do it justice. It's translated to our children's future. Why that was so important for us to come upon that name is at the time that we did the naming, there were so many of these community centers rising up to try to help in their communities because social services couldn't keep up with the demand of the communities who were losing adults in their primes of their lives as parents and leaving children orphaned. So people were popping up all over to try to help. So many of them had blank this AIDS orphan center or the AIDS thing. We were just like, no, 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 no. We're not naming it anything to do with AIDS. Yes, AIDS is one of the causes of the crisis, but this is not just a response to a crisis without a vision who these children are and can be. So that's why we agreed upon that name. Like Emerald, it's not easy to say. So we go with the BBLCF. I wanted to clarify that, but also to talk about the future. For those kids at BBLCF, one of the programs that we were able to introduce is a powerful Baha'i-inspired program called the Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program. It's a program that focuses on children from ages 11 to 14 to really help them connect with who they are and with their inherent noble qualities and how they can bring them forth, just like mining the gems in the quote that I shared from Baha'u'llah. I was just so excited to be able to learn about how we might do this in a setting where formal education is there, but is very underserved, extremely underserved, and also not really able to educate the whole child and not really able to see and bring forth their spiritual powers, which all of us need to do, but in particularly underserved areas where they might not be able to graduate from high school or even think about a university. So the question for us and when we're thinking about equity and social justice is, how do we work with this? We can't just only have a paradigm that says college or nothing. How do we engage in this process of bringing forth these qualities in all of us so that we can better our communities, so that we can earn a livelihood? So yeah, so those are the questions we were asking. And then the Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program took off with the help of a lot of people, but particularly the local Baha'i community in that area really helped to systematize the regular junior youth classes. We had one of the youths who came up at the center to be the animator. We've had several really wonderful stories about these young people rising up and holding devotionals in their home to to increase the capacity for 
having meaningful and spiritually guided conversations with their family and friends. I raise this because you asked the question about the future. I want to learn so much more about being able to educate more broadly, despite the fact that I have this privileged background from being able to be in a university. I want to expand that to more of humanity. I don't want education to be tied to whether or not somebody has the resources or has access to the resources. But I also want to change that issue too. I want to make the access of the resources more readily available to all human beings. So these are all projects that I I want to be involved in, in in the future. Actually, at MSU, though, there is a future project that we are working on, and that is to try to align our intercultural engagement work through the Emerald Program with the Multicultural Unity Center that was created in 2013 at the university and then is in the process of growing. A new building is in the works, and we are really trying to help expand the possibilities of what could happen in in a multicultural unity center, particularly around the social issues of our day, bringing attention, yes, for students, but also for faculty and staff to create spaces for consultation and compassion, which Baha'u'llah calls the two great luminaries of society building. We no longer can rely on old patterns of relating to solve these big issues that face us, these challenging and daunting issues that face us. So all of that is what I'm interested in the future. Well, Jean, thank you so much for taking this time to describe for us your spiritual journey and also the work, the wonderful work you're doing in the area of racial unity. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jean Gazelle. Director of the Multiracial Unity Living Experience at Michigan State University. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
make me a shining lamp and a, a brilliant star. Thou art the mighty and the powerful. Thou art the mighty. Sorrowful. 
sorrowful and grieved I will be a happy and joyful being Oh God, I will no longer be full of anxiety Nor will I let trouble harass me
Praise worthy in thy sight. 